little log fire because it's keeping me nice and toasty and warm because it's that time of year and you've got to keep nice and toasty and warm and i hope wherever you are you're keeping lovely and warm happy new year to you how was your christmas all right stressful relaxing argumentative well look whatever it was it's gone now christmas is over you can take all your worry, all your anxiety and take them with you to the tip when you take your old Christmas tree and leave them there because we are going into 2019. But before we do, we're taking a look back at 2018. Now, before we broke for Christmas, the few weeks before that, we asked you to get in touch, let us know, little, not necessarily best moments for you, but moments that touched you and made you laugh, made you cry, made you think. Um, and we've put them all together in an episode, so this is it. So let's think. Last January, we started back off the year with Greg McHugh, and we went right through the year with incredible guests, leading to Jodie Comer just before we broke for Christmas. Now, if you're new to the podcast, this is a great way of going back and thinking, oh, well, I skipped that episode. Why did I skip that? Maybe I'm going to go back and listen to that. Or... This is also a great episode to send to people who don't know about the podcast. They get a little glimpse, a little snippet of the bigger picture, the bigger two-shot podcast picture, and maybe they'll want to get involved. So, I'm sat here in front of my fire. I'm having a little beer. I'm very nice it is too. What I want you to do is sit back and relax. I'm going to pop back, not too much, but I'm going to tell you where we're starting. We are starting with a clip chosen by Peter Garvey. Thank you, Peter, for getting involved. This is a clip with Steve Everts. Then we move to Ireland's finest, Adrian Dunbar. That was chosen, very kindly, by Matthew Egan. Then I chose a clip from the wonderful, the fantastic Susan Wacoma. And then our Griff, producer Griff, picked Mandip Gill. And then we go to Sheffield, courtesy of Rich Widowson, who chose Pete McKee. And then we go to London for Karen Bryson. So get on with those. I'll have a beer, and I'll see you in a bit. But that was uh, Bombay, then. Bombay at the time, yeah. Yeah. It's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. But I found this place, um, all right, Den of Iniquids there. It was fantastic. But because you're only allowed, <laughs> you were allowed like two beers a day on that ship. And for some of the old uh, piss heads, they, believe it or not, I didn't drink a lot. I did when I was ashore, but I wasn't one of them who, well, I did sometimes, but needed a drink on the ship. Well, some of the old fellas, who told, will you give me your beer? And you'd give them because they had the shakes and the DTs and all that nonsense. So anyway, while we were at port in Mumbai, Bombay, they told me to go ashore and get them some beer. So you give me about 100 quid in rupees, as long, wasn't it? Anyway, I didn't get the beer. I absconded to this place, this house of ill repute, that I'd already been to. <laughs> <laughs> and I basically moved in there for three days. Uh, I didn't come out. I had my 18th birthday there. The women were great. They, they didn't have Rizzlers. They, made, they could make your joints out of cigarettes. And they had it fine out, they'd just empty all the backy out, make you a bit of black, and then bang it back in, bang. Next thing you had ten joints. And I spent all the money in there. So they fed me, oh, they were great. They fed me, they watered me, they scored uh, joints for me. They looked after me in other ways. <laughs> I was 18 and nobody knew me mum. <laughs> <laughs> And then... <laughs> There's no spies in Bombay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was like, this is great. And then the madam, oh, she was awful. She said, right, you've got no more money left, fuck off. <laughs> so it's like, ah. Oh. Anyway, I got back to the ship. You must have been like, for the eye jump. Oh, wait till they see you, wait till they see you. But first port call was the skipper, who I'd been missing for three days. So I had to go in and see the captain. And it was like... I've been worried about you. I'd search parties out. Nobody knew where you was. You did the, the getting all that bollocks. So I, I, I took it. I took the bollocks. And he, he did finally did he tell him what the the truth? No, no. I just told him. I just said I was with someone. Uh, he just bollocks me basically, and he fined me a day's pay um, and something else besides. 
I stood there shuffling my shoes and looking down like I was at school again, getting bollocked. And then he said, anything to say for yourself? And I said, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. Any chance of a sub? And he went, uh, <laughs> how much do you want? I said, 100 quid. He went, yeah. So he gave me 100 quid and I fucked off back there. No, you didn't. <laughs> I did. I went straight back there. <laughs> it won't happen again. <laughs> I, went, I went straight back there. And I knocked on the, the, the man and, yeah, I've got money. Come in. So I only stayed about a day and a half this time. Because <coughs> I thought, I can't stay here forever and I know we're sailing to you and I've got to face music. So I owed them money. And they were not happy with me. Anyway, I got, got back again after being there a day and a half, two days. And I see the skipper again. And I told him some cock and bull story that I'd met this girl and fell in love and all that. He bollocked me again. He was a bit soft touch, really. And you obviously he, knew it was a soft touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because he, he gave me the hundred quid. Yeah, of he, was, he was one of the most. I can't believe he gave me that hundred quid after three quid. days going missing. I know, I know. <laughs> but then I got when I come out of there, it was like you cruise bar now. So I went, and it was like a kangaroo court, and I shit myself. And it was like, right, you owe us money. Yeah, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll pay everyone. And basically, they all said. We want our money back. And I went, you, you, I'll, give you, I'll give you your money back. And then he basically all said, anyway, well done, lad. We'd have done the fucking same. <laughs> now fuck off. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. Oh, my God. I thought they'd give me a good kicking at least. But to, to a man, every one of them were like, good on you, lad. I'd have done the same. That's the kind of mentality it was. That's, that's one of the best 18th birthday stories I've ever heard. It was, it it was great. It was a great 18th. You've had such uh, such an interesting career doing lots of loads of diff different things, and I was thinking about the all the years that I've known you, and I remember thinking, oh, we, well, Aidy's finishing the acting now, and I remember saying to him, "What are you doing?" Oh, well, I'm off to go and do the Brendan Bean thing, or I'm doing the Beckett Festival. You're always keeping yourself creative. You're always doing something. Yeah, I think it's important for actors, like, like you know, you're doing this podcast now. I think it's very important for actors. Uh, to stay in their creative head at all times, you know, you've got to keep, uh, you know, being no matter what you're doing, you know, you, you know, I know actors who are, who are really good at carpentry, for example, and will will go and or or they're good at painting, but you know, they'll do some something that they can put their creativity into. You can't let your creativity lie around. You can't wait for the phone to ring, thinking that somebody's gonna. You've got to get either right. You've got to get up and perform. You've got to do. Somehow, if you can, I mean, I know that it's difficult, but if you can, you've got to explore other things that you yeah. can do. And, uh, you know, it might be putting on a poetry uh, e reading somewhere, you know, because th those things are wonderful, you know. People love those events. And uh, at the moment, I've put together this incredible show. I think it's incredible where I've taken uh t.s Eliot's the wasteland and i've broken it into four voices and a friend of mine nick roth has written this new music and i found the bfi uh recently uh put online uh the first ever color footage of london in the 1920s and it's absolutely extraordinary petticoat lane you know the barges on the thames all that kind of thing very very evocative and just at the right time for the for the for the poem when the poem is written and I put all three things together, and it's really an extraordinary evening, you know. And art, after all, when when you're when you when you after a while you realise that art is simply being able to make the connection between things. That's all it is, making the connection between colour and emotion, making the connection between you know words and emotion, and the, you know the visual connections that thing. If you can find three things that connect with one another you you know and they may you know so you, it, it's not necessarily that you have to be original all the time what's important that you can see how things slot into one another and complement one another and create a new whole if you like three things that you thought were whole in themselves you put the three of them together and suddenly bang something else happens you know and um so I find that really exciting and, uh, you know, uh, there's no dough in it. 
you know, there's no but what there is is there's a great sense of creativity and creating and camaraderie and if you do manage to get these things together is it there's a great sense of achievement and i think people people really love it you know well i had to teachers and mentors it all comes back to that a tremendous woman who's one of my closest friends still called maria leaf and she taught me at this saturday drama group the one that's sponsored by english national opera yeah. so so i met her at 14 went there every saturday and um she only told me this i think this year or last year is when I would, I'd always arrive, arrive slightly late, like 10 minutes late. And because um, I'd get the bus and the bus would take ages. Anyway, I was always there. I'd always arrive. And what I didn't know was that my dad used to call in the drama group and just like hurl abuse at them because like, what are you doing with my daughter? And, oh, no. and I had no idea. She never told me. She only told me like this year. I think it was this year or last year that they knew what was going on, but I'd always come into class and never show it and they never brought it up. So I didn't know. So she knew, actually looking back, it makes sense. She offered, I, she said that I could live with her yeah. for my first term. She, now that I know that she knew all of, she actually knew the, the golf of it, how opposed, and I, I think it's not just, not to paint my dad out as a, as a villain at all and he's not alive, so it's not fair, but he, was scared. He couldn't protect me in acting. He didn't understand it. This world where, you know, all you do is hear stories about actors yeah. falling off the wagon and yeah. this horrible thing happening and this, like he couldn't, it's not a world that he could give me any advice, protect me. So if he just goes, all right, off you go, you do it on your own. Then he, he doesn't feel helpless. Did he feel that when he gave you that ultimatum? Yeah. That you were going to say, all right, well, I won't go to the drama school. Then. Yeah. Actually, no, he knew me by then. I'm fucking stubborn. He, no, he knew it was get out. He knew it was, it was leave. And I was fine with it. There wasn't an argument. Because actually I thought I can start this RADA place and be in an environment where I can concentrate. And when Maria said, here's a sp spare room, I knew that I'd be with somebody who, I mean, when I t got into RADA, you know, what I didn't get at home, I got from her. She was so, she couldn't believe it that one of her kids is gone to they got in they got in mm. um so how old were you at this point i was 19 right yeah so it's still pretty young to have that fractured relationship yeah with with your parents and also you're feeling great animosity towards your mum yeah and, and you're starting this new path so you must have been putting on your suit of armour yeah. really early yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that shit was like made I mean, to measure, man. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the resilience yeah, you do. Is, there is, is unbelievable. Yeah, I, and you know what? There's loads of moments in my career now where things haven't worked out and whatever, where I have to look back at the time and go, you're a boss, man. Yeah. Like you're made, like whatever went you went through with your parents, they gave you really fucking strong DNA. Like you did get a lot from them yeah of course of course it did and i have to say like it did it has come good i remember i went out to la i think <laughs> I <went out> to LA, <laughs> um at the beginning of the year and i remember being at, i was at the airport and i called my mum just to be like yeah about to get on the plane love you da, da, da. and she said this is the most powerful thing she was just like i can't i just i just want to say i can't believe you're an actress you said that you want to be an actress and now you're an actress mad you just are you said it and then you are yeah, well, sometimes these things can happen. And if we don't say them, yeah. then we can never even begin to try and be them. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. But she's immense. She's like, she thinks I'm utterly impressive. She you thinks are. I'm a boss. I like, think you a are. proper boss. <laughs> <laughs> I really fucking do. But, it did, but, to, but you know what was really good about having that separation was what? that my career never became about making my parents proud. Very quickly, I had to get rid of that. Then I invited into my next show. <laughs> so I'm all like, yeah, oh my God, maybe my dad is going to be finally proud of me. Then I invited into my next show, which was a play called Four by Christopher Shin. It's not particularly explicit. But... That was one scene when I had to snog this guy in my ear and, and basically rip his trousers off and then climb on top of him and then it, it all goes to black as I'm basically taking off my clothes. And um, 
I didn't think about that because I was so proud of the play. Yeah. And I had a really good time and it was only the four of us um, doing this play. And, um, yeah, and I just thought it was good work. I thought it was really good work. And I just didn't put two and two together. And afterwards, going out to the bar and my dad's face was stone cold. He didn't say anything. He just turned to leave, walked out of the building. What, so when he saw him. you coming yeah, and then he turned to he leave? turned to leave. I followed him out. I was like, oh, dad, you're right. Didn't say anything until we got to Goode Street Station. Then he turned to me and it was just like, you are a whore. I was like, what? He was like, how can you? Because he knew my boyfriend at the time as well. And he was just like, how can your boyfriend watch you do that? Oh do that God. with another man? Like That you couldn't separate? Yeah, no, no. And then I thought, that's the last time. <clears throat> that's the last time I'm inviting to anything. We were brought up on a council estate and we had a massive news agent on that council estate. So it was a really weird thing because people needed to come into the shop because we were the the biggest news agent on that shop, like, it was massive, like a mini supermarket. But then you would see the same people being really racist to my dad and my dad having fights. But I was like, but you definitely need to come in next week. And then, you know, they'd apologise a little bit, they wouldn't be allowed in for a while. Well, then they'd be allowed in for a bit because we, there was this just weird relationship there. Certain people weren't ever allowed back in, but it was like, oh, you know, they've apologised now, or we've sorted it out, it was a few years ago, and then they'd come back in. But I was like, I do and... My dad had that shop built on that council estate um, and had been there quite a long time. Like, by the time I was born, he'd already been there quite a long time. So he had made friends with a lot of these people, but they were still really racist. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, I don't mind you at the shop, but I just don't like the other ones because they needed the shop. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking to him nicely when they came into the shop, but... Because they needed something Because they needed him. something from How him. How did your dad deal with that? How did he cope with that? I don't know, we don't really... We're not really a family that speak about stuff like that. But I just used to see him have fights all the time. I think he was just there, like, making money. Yeah, with these six girls and a boy. In your family? In my, like, I've got five sisters and a brother. And they so are, are you the all, youngest? I'm the youngest girl, so I've got five older sisters, is yeah. me and my younger brother. And I think it was just a... With my dad, it was just, we're here to make money, just protect the girls. Like, he used to get them to fight and they did stick up for themselves. Because they had to. They had to. And I think for my dad, it, I think it was just protecting their, us and my mum in the shop and going, we're making money because it was a good shop, we're doing well. And we'll just hope, like, nothing really bad happens. I had to find a way to paint that complemented how I, I draw. So I'm not like someone who can go out into the field and, and paint a landscape in watercolours or in fine art oils. I had to be something quite simplified and, and very straightforward, communicative-wise communication. So it had to be cartoonesque in some respects. But I knew that fine art, don't you, you can't do caricatures of people with fine art because it just comes straight down to being a cartoon again yeah. and then before no one takes any notice of it, it's not serious enough. So I had to find a way that I could draw people without drawing caricatures of the faces. Or And so that's why my artwork is quite simplified in that respect, feature-wise with the face, because yeah. it's, it's somebody but nobody in the same respects. So it worked really well for me, in fact, because it meant that you could adopt... It's, your own view of that picture to somebody you might know yourself even. So if I did a little kid just with scraggy hair in ill-fitting trousers, then that's you growing up kind of thing. Or if I did an old couple, that's your nan and granddad because the features were taken away. It, it, it wasn't anybody very specifically, it was him specific. So so it really worked in that way. So when I came up with this idea, when because obviously as a cartoonist, you're always drawing, you're always doodling, you're always changing your style and everything. So this particular one drawing I did, kind of sort of went, wow, this guy's got just one line, it's like an eyebrow line, and his nose, and he's just there, and he's kind of looking blankly at me, but he's looking at me in some way, and I can't quite work out why, but I'm connecting with this really simple drawing. I thought, well, that's it. I can use that face, but adapt it to stories that I can tell. You know, I might have got something this, and, and, and that in itself was an interesting thing, because once I got the style... I had to work out what was going to be the subject matter for the pictures. And I was always, I was growing up really influenced by like kind of American comic strips and stuff like that. So I thought, so when I was drawing comic strips, 
I was drawing them in American sort of style, very sim uh, in in that sort of vein. But I thought, well, I can't do Americana, not in this country, and get, and get away with it. And then I watched this documentary about um, Ray Charles. Just one night, after, while I, you know, while I were uh, toying with this idea of what I'm going to do next in my life, and Ray Charles, in this documentary, sort of said that when he set out as a kid, he'd be going around all these joints. And they were um, doing Nat King Cole impersonations. We're doing Nat King Cole songs, doing it in a Nat King Cole style. Then this agent came up to him, this guy who owned this bar, and said, "Look, Ray, he says you're great as Nat King Cole, but there's one guy better than you at Nat King Cole, and that's Nat King Cole. <laughs> What's Ray Charles do?" And he realised he had to be himself, and, yeah. and I interpreted that as I had to tell, I had to be myself in my artwork. I had to tell the stories that I knew and understood. And uh, so from there on in, I just basically became very biographical in my work, but without mentioning names or anything like that. So I, I think about it now and I get, you know, the hair on my arms go up. That's, that's art. And how that's... incredible that you've still got that. Oh, God, without that you can, fail. You can think about that and it, it inspires you again. Exactly. I mean, he was avant-garde and I believe that you can tell stories and have impact in a way that gets bums on seats. Um, the more people that see it, the better, is yeah. my view. Yeah. It's all very well making art for art's sake. Ish. I mean, I do believe you should express yourself, but it's going to touch someone. And if it touches someone, it needs pushing to get it seen by as many people, especially if it's saying something interesting or important. Yeah, but so if that, it inspires one person... You're right. You're right. Just one then it's all, it's still doing some good. You're absolutely right. Because if it does that for you, it's bound to have done it for somebody else. Yeah. You can think that. You're you're absolutely right. You you are right. I do think about mass appeal because it's such an important medium. It's such a powerful thing. Film, TV, good TV, yeah. art, literature is such an important it's all very well watching news footage. We are desensitised. If you show someone's plight behind statistics, it's done. Yeah. It's done. You are going to touch someone, even the hardest person. It's, it, your, your, your journey's done. And the more people see that, the more we make change. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, inspiring one person is great, but I do believe in if there is a way of... I'm not saying compromising what you do, but getting the right avenues to to show and to showcase is what makes change because, you know, we're run by popularity. I mean, look at all this social media. Yeah. You know, so... But also change doesn't come f from anger. No. And, and screaming about injustice. No. Because it's just... You might as well be yeah. smashing your head against a brick Absolutely. wall. And uh, we've, I'm sure we've all been there. Before, do you know what? This is not. Yeah. This is not right. No, it's not right. No, it's not fair. But it's just life. Yeah. And we yeah. need to navigate yeah. our way through it the best we can. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you know, being angry and shouting about it—that's a, a turn off. That's it. Just is. Yeah. And throughout history, if you look at the cases of mass injustices, the people who have had the most impact have there's been no violence and there's been I mean Rosa Parks I, I just say one here right now yeah you know what I mean calm powerful yeah get your voice heard that yeah. way yeah yeah now I couldn't think of a better way to start this second half by starting the way we started last January with the wonderful Greg McHugh. Then we move on to a clip chosen on Twitter by at Sally Ten Ali, the remarkable, the one and only Mr. Tony Pitts. Then, do you remember um, in the mid-year, mid-year, is that how you say it? In the middle of the year, yeah. We got asked by Bath Festival very kindly to come and do a live episode and we couldn't think of anybody better than one of the stars of BBC's BAFTA winning this country, Mr. Charlie Cooper. Then we've got a lovely clip from Mira Sayal and we end the second half with a clip chosen by Nick Perrins. It's the one and only Mr. Carl Pilkington. Enjoy. I'll see you in a bit. There was a guy running the course who was, and I don't mind saying this now, he was an absolute misogynistic moron of a man 
who was just all about quelling, not about playing and encouraging. He was all about bringing you down at every single opportunity. And, and I always remember it because part of it was you had to write, at the end of each week, you had to write a diary about um, about your week, but you had to be very careful not to think that you'd done anything well. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not joking. So if you went in and I felt pleased about that, he'd be saying, why do you think you did that well? And it would all be about dumbing you down but by that point after sterling thankfully and this is what kind of saved me of that process i'd started doing stand-up so i'd got i'd got the comedy bug whoa, whoa. Yeah. i know we've got the comedy bug but oh. getting the comedy bug and being fascinated about comedy and writing sketches yeah. and all that to go in do you know what i'm gonna do some stand-up yeah that's a massive leap it was a huge leap but i remember by the end of uni loving comedy so so much and then getting into stand-up and billy Connolly that i'd become a bit obsessed with at uni I said, I'm going to do that because I need some outlet. And now I need yeah. to find out if I can. And was this was this stand-up going on stage as you telling jokes or going on as a character? No, as me doing kind of straight stand-up, yeah. Please tell me about your first stand-up. Mate. I can't. I can barely remember it. There's a club in Edinburgh called the Stand Comedy Club. Yeah, they very famous. To, it's the best. It's yeah. where, I, you know, where I started. And at the time, this is pre-millionaire you know, stand-ups. You know, this is not when it was fashionable. This no. was about a lot of people kind of wanting to get on in comedy and, and loving comedy. So they do a, a night on a Monday night in Edinburgh, Red Raw it was called, and I didn't tell anyone apart from one mate from uni um, that I was going to do it, and I just did it. And when I did it and I came off the stage, I mean, I can't remember. I wouldn't have gone that well. I can't remember clearly how badly or well it went. I was completely addicted. Really? Oh, it was like, it was the biggest adrenaline to land anything. And something must have landed in order for yeah, to must have something. Done. And you're only doing five minutes, which in comedy terms, five minutes can be a very long yeah. time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that that had started whilst I was applying to drama schools. And I was working also at a, a leisure centre, uh, selling gym memberships. So what I was doing during the day, people only buy gym memberships at lunchtime and at the end of the day. So for the rest of the day, I was writing stand-up. And then performing it at Red Raw on a Monday night. Wow. And then gigging. I'd started to drift to different gigs and I'd built all that. I'd built up quite a network of gigs by the time I got into drama school. Were you basing stuff in your stand-up on your personal life? Yeah. Loads of personal life, loads of Edinburgh, loads of characters I'd met, things at school, things at uni. I mean, nothing complicated or intellectual. (laughs) But just stuff that made me laugh. Well, that, that comedy shouldn't be. Comedy can be anything and nothing, can't it? It doesn't it, have to absolutely, be. Absolutely, yeah. You know. If anything, it shouldn't be intellectual, really. Well, you know, it, nothing. For me, comedy is not those Radio 4. Yeah. That's not for me. But, you know, it's got a massive audience. Well, but I'm it's certainly saying, not for me. No, it's not the visceral laughs. You're not going to get me bent over on the kitchen sink, you know, no. listening to that. Uh, well, I mind you that, to be fair, there are some things that. that are, but generally speaking, I know exactly what you're saying is that I was after the, I was after the characters. So a lot of this was all kind of going towards the act, more of the acting world. As I yeah. was, Billy Connolly's vignettes, his stories, the people that featured in the stories, him coming back to the story. That's what I'd started to kind of aspire to, like massively, probably overly. So as as when you're starting out, you know, you don't have your voice here. You know, you're trying oh, to emulate. No, I, you're trying I, to emulate. Well, I can imagine, but if you put somebody like Billy Connor that is God on that pedestal, mm. you're just learning from the best. And obviously, subconsciously, you're going to yeah. take in a bit of his rhythm well, or his yeah. voice. And hopefully, I mean, I was conscious of making sure I didn't, you know, it's not about, I would never do other people's material, but I wanted to tell stories that people enjoyed. And I think I, I started to do that not too badly. I think in, in retrospect, I was more of an actor on stage than I was a stand-up willing to really open themselves up. I think the best stand-ups are the people who... Cut their heart out and throw it on the stage. Yeah. yeah and, and that's... Uh, having watched so much, so many brilliant people and worked with brilliant people, the real brilliant people are those individuals. And it can be terrifying to watch as an audience member sometimes. Oh, it can. I find, because I've been in those situations where I've gone, this is really uncomfortable. Totally, yeah. But I respect how, what uh-huh. a genius you are, yeah. And, and also on that fine line of it, when you see that and it doesn't fly with that audience, it, it just becomes totally tragic. Whereas the, the, the average stand-up who's um, doing the, the have-you-notice stuff, you know, they'll just coast along. But they'll never be 
they'll well, never they'll never be amazing. And I think, to be honest, I I was I was veering and you know I was staying on a line of oh he's he's all right he's quite good, but then eventually I, I start to really reflect and go, you're not you're an act you're you're about the characters and about narrative and about story. And so there was never a time when you thought, right, no, I'm going to put all my heart and soul and my energy and creativity I was too scared. into this. I was, I, I, th- I was too scared. But, mate, you got up on stage and started yeah. to tell jokes. You've, you've taken that step. For me, that is the scare. And I'm sure for a lot of people, yeah. getting on stage and trying to make it as a stand-up yeah. is the scariest thing ever. I think it is, but then... You know, you'll know this as well. There's... Getting on stage full stop is an odd thing. The, the parameters of control, so i.e. you've got a play behind you, in stand-up you end up having this mini play of jokes that, that you've written. And, and, yeah, it is terrifying, but you do have the opportunity to prep and to... And, of course, you're in, when in a play, you've got other people there. To you're... blame. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say a support. <laughs> support, yeah. yeah, yeah. So in a way, your your preparation, your jokes are the support. Well, they are, but it's a very lonely world. And actually, in the yeah, end, it, it really is. I think when you know when after drama school as well, when I moved to London, when I was trying to you know just get get work, and 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 by that point, I'd done well in Scotland, but it was like going back to square one in in London because there's so many brilliant people and people didn't really know who I was. Um, you realise just how lonely and difficult that as a career is, I think, or certainly in the early stages. And I think that depends where you start, you know. I think your starting point dictates a lot about your later years. What 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 you see is down for people, what you think is down for you, for your life. See, I didn't, gr- I didn't grow up in an environment where there were actors and writers. I didn't see actors or writers or musicians or artists. I didn't see so, them. So when did that come into your life? Ken, obviously- well, Ken Loach uh, picked me. Um, I was uh, the, the, I would contend without any fear of contradiction. I was the world's worst truck mechanic uh, uh, in Sheffield. And Ken Loach picked me uh, from obscurity at the age of... 19 and gave me a second lead in his film Looks and Smiles. And, um, Which was the, was that the Barry Hines? Barry Hines, yeah. 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 And was, how did he find you? Because he, he, was he coming around? Yeah, came to uh, college, uh, um, came to college and to, you know, so our class of, uh, Sausage-fingered truck mechanics, and I was one of them. And they and said, uh, "Imagine if somebody stole in your motorbike, how would you react?" And then f- there were four or five stumbling attempts. And then when it came, when it was my turn, I just went fucking ballistic. You know, I reacted the way that that you would, that I would. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the well, the way that boy would have. Yeah. And uh, and then they called me back, and it was still all very unclear. That that was like the. Thursday, and then they rang over the weekend, and on the Tuesday, I uh, left Keddings, sold the wood chisel that I had, that was my only tool that I had, and started working on uh, on the film we can launch. So my plan at the time was, okay, I'll, I'll move back, earn a bit of money, then hopefully move again. But again, still not finding my passion or what I wanted to do. Um, you can't just go fishing all the time. No, exactly. <laughs> no one's going to pay Char- me for that. Char- Charlie likes to fish. I'm not very good, but I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was, again, it's so, it was so difficult. And even at the age of, tw- I was sort of 20, 21, you feel that if you don't find something soon, your life's going to be over, which is completely wrong. Well, it's absolute bullshit because yeah. there's no rush. You get no, to it everyone at whatever is, time. is on their own sort of path, but um, you can't help but feel pressured about you know what your friends are doing. And, and also you, that society going, you need to find 100%. your outlet now or if you're going to be creative, do this. Do yeah, that. and again, lucky that we had parents that didn't do that. Yeah. And I know, you know most of my friends, their parents would have you know, kicked us out on our ass and gone you know, get a job. And then... We okay, so Daisy had the idea for the character, and then she started writing a really, really rough script around this character. And, and she, at this point, was it just like a, a one-woman thing, or were you? It was just. Into this? It, it started actually. It was, the whole idea was that she, she was quite ambitious. She wanted to film this thing on a just a digital camera, but it was like turned up. It was like a selfie before selfies were sort of around. 
but she was sort of filming videos but not she, the whole point was the character didn't know how to work the camera right and then she had the idea about Carrie's mum so she'd have this sort of uh, voice recorder and the, she'd play and have conversations with the mum and do like tiny little videos and put them up on YouTube and stuff and they were really good it's really fucking funny and I remember my dad thinking right you've got to do something so she wrote a very rough script, but she couldn't, um, she couldn't, she's useless with computers and couldn't type it up. She's like, oh, Charlie, will you do this for me? I was like, oh, fine, I'll give it a go. So I just typed up, you know, sort of a few uh, scenes for her and they were so fucking funny. And, um, and then I sort of, I can't, I just gradually became more involved. And then I was like, okay, let's sit down in a room and let's, let's do this together because I would love to be involved. And then we started writing more characters and then we started writing plots. And How was it writing together? Because I, I've spoken to a lot of people that write together and they say it's really, really difficult. And also you're adding even more pressure because mm. your siblings write no, together. Yeah, it, it, the good thing about siblings is that you can be completely honest with each other. And, and, and we are <laughs> probably more than we should be. But if, you know, if I said something, she's going, ah, shite do something else and I'd say the same to her so that's really if you did that with a friend it's difficult yeah. because you've got to sort of tiptoe around things but it's gr- obviously great with a sibling you've got a shorthand you shorthand, can just go straight yeah, to totally. it totally and for me and her the best way we've ever communicated was through comedy and through humour so we always found the things same things funny even though you know even though they weren't meant to be so that was so it just clicked straight away and it was so easy and it was so much fun. And it was basically an extension of what we did in the room in London. We were just typing up the things that we were saying to make each other laugh. And were you reminiscing of home when you were in London? All the time. All the time. We'd, all, we'd be talking about people we went to school with. You know, what would they be having for their tea right now? What would they be watching on TV? And so all those sort of things, you know. So do you think you were missing it in London? Or were you subconsciously missing home? Subconsciously missing it, I think. Her more so. Um, and yeah, it's sort of, yeah, no idea it was going to sort of have that effect later on, but, um, and then, so yeah, we wrote a really sort of rough idea for a show uh, quite quickly and then sent it to Daisy's agent who, um, sent it out to loads of production companies. So we were lucky that Daisy had an agent, so we had an in straight away because otherwise I don't know how you get, um, past that. And um, so we sent it out to loads of production companies and they all came back fairly interested and sort of come in for a meeting. And so when you get those emails, me and Daisy are like, fucking hell, this is, this is a big break. We'll be bloody millionaires by next year. <laughs> this, was two, <laughs> this was 2010. So, um, yeah, we didn't realise what a roller coaster it would be. And then, and then we went, we went, got the National Express to London, had various meetings with different people, and that was amazing, going into these offices and, you know, seeing, you know, pictures on the walls of uh, various uh, famous comedians and going, oh my God, this is insane. And then we, we picked one production company that we, um, that we sort of felt that we got on with and we felt that they got the show and that we wanted to do. And, um, and then we started developing the show with them for about two, three years. And it was a really slow process. That long? Yeah, because the producer we were working with had six, seven other projects and we were bottom of the list. So we weren't priority. And then you, we'd write a script, we'd send it off, not hear anything back for about three weeks. We'd chase them, nothing. And then suddenly he'd come back with a list of notes. And then we'd do the notes, type it up again, send it off, not hear anything back. So it was such a slow process. But we were so naive because we didn't know any different. And um, I don't know. We, we sort of, we thought, okay, we'll stick with this, see, where, we'll see what happens. But obviously you found it frustrating. We did at the time. Um, and because we weren't working. So Daisy was still going up for auditions, not getting any. And then we sort of had, a, we did a shared job as cleaners in our local office block. And we were the worst cleaners of all time. <laughs> we did that for about six months. And, but it was great because we did it in the evenings and we'd talk about work and we'd talk about... That sounds like another show in itself. It, I know, we've got to write something about it. We were, she, Daisy would use the same cloth for um, the, the kitchen tabletops as she would in the toilets. Uh, I am not joking. And we did get sacked in the end and deservedly so. <laughs> 
Be brave. Be brave as a voice in your head. Be brave. What have you got to lose? Nothing. So no one's done it before. So what? You could be the first to do it. Yeah. And then somebody just handed... It's like... And then, of course, you know, unpicking that. But I created the work. Yeah. So it seems to me like acting is all about that mixture of hard work, lots of sweat, and luck. Yeah. But, you know, be ready for the opportunity, but do as much as you can to create it and being proactive. And I had to be proactive because who was going to write parts for women like me? Exactly. So, you can't sit around. No. No one can sit around and wait. No. But at that time, you, yeah. you couldn't afford to do no. that. But how fantastic that you put that down. You. It was therapy to get spew all that out. <laughs> I know. On, if you hadn't have done that. And I didn't know if anyone would get it. I don't know if anyone would find it funny the way I did because I spent my childhood giggling behind my hand going, is anyone else finding this really hilarious that, you know, those relatives over there um, are trying to speak, you know, like they're not Indian and they think it's posh. Is, is anyone laughing about the conversations people are having over there about we will find the best pharmacist for you, you don't worry. <laughs> Has anyone else got suitcases on top of their wardrobe like my parents because they're thinking not Powell's going to chuck us out tomorrow. Is it, hey, is it just me? Hi. <laughs> and I felt like the sort of mad voice in the wilderness. But and then suddenly you put this stuff down and you go, no, I'm not mad. I mean, people get this because, you know, we all, we all share humanity. We all understand the universal stories. I think everyone's got to keep busy. I always, every time I go, do you know, like people go, what would Jesus do? I don't say that. I look at what, what insects do because they're, they're like purer than us, aren't they? They haven't got, we've gone off the rails at some point. We were cavemen. We're smacking about, we're surviving, we're running after shit, chickens, cutting them up, cooking them on a fire, you're doing survival. We don't survive anymore, do we? <laughs> no. There's none of that. We've gone way off. I don't know what year, I can't pinpoint the point where nature went, I fucked up here, humans have gone way off. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. More and more happens when you, you see what people do pissing about on a jet ski. That was never, nature never intended humans to be doing that. So I always look at insects and go, look at them. They're always busy. Always, like, running about. You watch an ant, it looks like it's got way too much to do. It's weighing about, it's going that way, and it's going, shit, I've got to do that, and it's going back that way. And I think that's the same as us. We've got to keep... Yeah. We've got to do something. We've got to be busy. Okay, stop. Just before we move on to the third part, should we have a poetry break? This is J.B. Barrington. Right, sunglasses, right, here we go. Sunglasses, right. This was written on August the 26th, 2015, so that's when me and Marvin... You need to check Marvin. Listeners, go and Google uh, YouTube Marvin, Marvin Cheese. Cheese loads of gigs together, he's fucking brilliant. Here we go. Take them fucking sunglasses off the sun's outside, you tool. Take them fucking sunglasses off, you confusing cunt with cool. Take them fucking sunglasses off, surely you can't see. Take them fucking sunglasses off, you're not Lenny from Peters and Lee. Take them fucking sunglasses off, it's a look we all deplore. Take them fucking sunglasses off, lose those delusions of grandeur. Take them fucking sunglasses off, them shades are a shameful blunder. Take them fucking sunglasses Sunglasses off, you're not Roy Orbison or Stevie Wonder. Take them fucking sunglasses off, your room is dimly lit. Take them fucking sunglasses off, it's dark in there, you tit. The esteemable J.B. Barrington there. Now, if you've never seen J.B. live, do try and catch one of his nights. He's an absolute force of nature. It's a cross between a poetry evening, a stand-up night and a rock concert. You will not be disappointed. Now... Let's get back to some clips. Now, this one is chosen very kindly by Sophie Brooks. Thank you, Sophie. A clip from the heart-melting episode that was Jacob Anderson. Then we go back to Manchester where we met Sean Gibson. This clip was chosen by Paul Hyam. Thank you, Paul. And it wouldn't be a year if we didn't have the fantastic Joe Gilgan. And this is a clip of Joe chosen by Pete Dancer. And a little inside information for you here. Come closer. Come closer. Joe Gilgan is coming back on in 2019 to come and have a natter. Shh. Don't tell. 
can't tell anybody. Then we moved to the Manchester Podcast Festival where we were invited to do another live show with our lovely friends in Manchester and what a night it was. What an epic night it was with the fantastic Ralph Little. And this was a clip chosen by two people, Jen Mediano, thank you Jen, and Harry Drummond. Then we go to a clip chosen by Matt Porter and it's the very, very lovely Miss Tamsin Althwaite. You have a listen to these. And I'll see you in a bit. What? No, I was, I was dropped. Oh, you were dropped? I was dropped, yeah. Like, a year and a bit ago, 18 months ago. Um, so There was like a what? complete change of... So of, how long after the album? I want to say about nine months. But the album did well. I mean, yeah, critically, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't really about that. I think. I mean, for one, the expectation for artists is really high. Right, majors. Like you have to. You know, if you don't break top ten, top twenty, then they don't want to know. Is that it? But God, see, Chris nodding his head. He knows. He knows more about this, this <laughs> yeah. business than I do. The music stuff. <laughs> yeah. But um, but yeah, it was like basically the the people that signed me or the person that signed me left the company. Right. The new guy that came in didn't, wasn't interested in continuing with me. Um, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this feels like I, I, I'm speaking out of turn. I think I'm contracted to not say any of this, but like, so I, can always I felt no like <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, I felt like I've, I'd been wearing like weighted clothes for four years. Yeah. And then, it was like somebody just had instantly just taken them all off and said, just go, run. Like it was, it was, I didn't know being dropped could be such a positive <laughs> thing. I think there's like a real stigma in that, that term. What, in being dropped? Being dropped, yeah. And it's, it's really weird because a lot of artists are dropped for no reason. And it's like... Yeah, of course, but that's other people's opinion of, yeah. of, of an artist. Yeah. But you know, actually, that's amazing that you saw it as, a, and also that it felt a freeing thing. Yeah, like, like you were, I said, it was in just, a way you were being compromised and you were being pushed and pulled about. Yeah, well, it was like it just felt like everything was a fight. That's not a good situation to be in. If you're no. in a relationship and you're all you do is fight and you have the occasional like makeup sex or like you're occasionally like you know you have little moments of joy, then that's not. It's not somewhere that you should stay, and it's not conducive for any relationship, is it? Yeah. It's like the, what you're saying about the trust. The yeah, tr the trust isn't there. Mm. It's like it's even when you're acting, when you go on set, if the trust isn't there with the director, then how are you supposed to fall? Yeah, and like and give yourself to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I'd, and and like I say, I hold my hands up and say that like I was quite cagey for a lot of that time. I wasn't interested in like having personal relationships with A and Rs or whatever. I was just like. I'm going to do my thing, you do your thing, and that's not collaborative. And it needs to be collaborative. So I know that I, like, resisted a lot. But it's because it wasn't the right fit. And I could, and like, also, I think we could all tell it was Maybe wasn't not the right you know. time, you know. Yeah. You're obviously, yeah. I think I knew before I signed the deal that, like, I wasn't supposed to be, I'm not a, that's not the... That's not who I, who I am. It's not the house that I'm supposed to live in. I'm <laughs> yeah. Like... Um, so yeah I was working with an actress recently and she said her tip is to go into a casting and if they give a bit of a chit chat to just kind of sh not cut them short but just say can we go straight into the part please she said because if she's learnt the lines yeah. and in in, she wants sort of, to get it in a headspace she wants to go in and do it and rather than go and chit chat about how you got on and how your train journey down. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to go with that because I really <gasps> like... I, I like that bit. I really like the talking. Mm. And I think half of getting a job is, of course, they want to see how good you are yeah. in, the, in, this, in this role. But you're buying two things. You're buying the actor yeah. and you're buying the actor yeah. who can play the role. And if you... It might, well, that person might be a great actor. Yeah. And then he speaks to him and go, what an absolutely awful person and what terrible yeah, viewpoints yeah, you've got know, on certain things in life. I, I don't I want to spend six weeks with you. But, but, I, um, but it works two ways. Yeah. What if... You, 
it might be a fantastic script and you speak to this director or producer and they're just god-awful people. So you have a little chat when you go in, do you? I, I do. I like mm. to have a chat mm. because, I personally, you know, I get nervous as well and I can babble on the best of times and go off on, like, millions of times. Yeah. So where were we? Sorry, I yeah. forgot the question. Yeah. Um, I was maybe pretending to be nervous. <laughs> you do get, I do get nervous because you just get self-conscious. Yeah. You just do, and I well, don't Well, you've got like four changes. people in a video camera just kind of like staring at you. And then someone doing offlines that just oh. can't speak, and you go, oh man. Especially if you've got the writer in. I just, I can't do it. I can't switch off. You know, I can't do that by myself unless I take like a fucking diazepam or smoke a spliff. But did it subside? Um, it did eventually, yeah, but I had to really work at it, man. Like, when I'd finished that job, when I'd finished that job, um, I, I was I started I couldn't even go to the shop for fucking milk by the time I got home. Um, I was sleeping. I'd, I'd gone moved in with my mate, and I was sleeping in like my bedroom was the front room of this house, and there's like a main road in front of that. I just remember being super anxious every night in this front room, like people <laughs> having fucking wars outside, like battles, like Jenna. It's not worth it. Leave him, Lee. Leave him, Lee. People fucking threatening to knock each other's dogs out. Like, I'll knock your fucking dog. I swear to God, I'll knock it clean out, lad. You know, hearing stuff like the stuff you'd hear from that fucking window. Shit, just shitting myself. I can appreciate it now. It's funny now, but at the time, I was thinking, oh, please don't knock any dogs out. I just can't, can't bear it. But anyway, so that... It, it sort of, I'd never had, it was then, I, it was around that period I realised that I, I use my anxiety, it fuels me, like, there's not a single job I've ever done where I'm not thinking I have to fucking do as good as I can possibly be, as good as I can possibly be, I mean, I know every actor must feel the same way. I'll tell you my Tom Hanks story. <laughs> Get comfortable, everybody. It's going to be a long one. It is a long one. So when I was younger, and I don't do this anymore, when I was younger, a lot of the roles I used to get, I used to walk in and I used to have this, especially when, you remember how I said, like, I was 15 and from, quote-unquote, Manchester, and you go to London and... I was more fucking Mancunian when I first moved to London than I've ever been in my entire life. Yo, all right, when I went to London, I'd walk into, like, a, a newsagent and go, I'll have a packet of prawn cocktail crisps, mate. Sound. Like, why? Never spoke like that my entire life. But You're it was just literally sort of, Kathy Burke yeah, coming back. Exactly. Yeah. Just bristling against kind of being in London. Um, so, you know, that sort of swagger, that late 90s swagger that kind of we all probably did a little bit. And I would walk into auditions, and I'd read... That, and I just had this in, innate sense that it was better to walk into an audition and have some sort of person, some sort of memorable thing to you, some sort of personality. Uh, if that was swagger, then so be it. Then it was to just be pleasant but forgettable. I didn't want to be unpleasant, mind. That's not, I want, never wanted to be a dick, but I certainly wanted to walk in with that kind of self-confident, assured thing. And sometimes that, went, sometimes that could go wrong and people could think you're a bit of a dick, but that was the risk that you took. So... Bearing all this in mind, when I think I was, Christ, what would I have been? Maybe like 20 years old in 2000 or something, 2001. Uh, so I'd been 20 or 21. They were casting Band of Brothers. Hold on, Will Ash, were you in Band of Brothers? Good. Um, <laughs> he didn't get it either. Excellent. <laughs> Every fucker else did though, didn't they? Um, uh, wait, were you in it? No. Yes, excellent. As long as no one in this room was in it, I'm good. So... I went for this. Uh, <laughs> so I went for this audition for Band of Brothers, and um, there was—I mean, it was—it was a real cattle call. It was every young British actor was in there, and there was something like you know, fifty parts or something. So I walked in, and it was an American audition. And American auditions, as you know, are really—you know—you turn up, and they sort of don't know who you are. They read your name off. It's not like they know you, and they go, "Hey, great to see you." They're like, "Yeah, next you might as well take a number, like you're at a deli counter or something." So. I walk in and I'm thinking, okay, like remember this kind of swagger sort of thing. In fact, for example, there's like a hundred people in the room waiting to go in and I've got my time slot and they're all reading the script like shaking and dead nervous. And I'm like, I'm not going to be like the rest of them. 
So I pulled out like Loaded magazine, which, <laughs> which I used to read when I was 20. And I used to pull out Loaded magazine and I'm flicking through like pictures of girls in bikinis and they call my name Ralph Little and I'm like, and I look up and look at the telecom I watch and I go, oh, um, are you sure? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, it's a couple of minutes early. Are you sure like there's not somebody else in? Like, you know, a bit of a dick, like, but I'm like, all right, yeah, you know, okay, no worries, like double mank. Like, yeah, all right, no worries, I'll come in. So I walk in. And I make, I can't remember what I said, but I make a couple of jokes. And literally within like 30 seconds, a bit self-deprecating, a bit like, you know, whatever. And then after about 30 seconds, she goes, um, she's like, well, oh my God, I think you are adorable. I love your sense of humor. I think you're, you're just so great. Would you like to come back in a couple of weeks and meet Tom Hanks? And I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm busy, you know, sure. <laughs> like, what a dick. So anyway, they set the date a couple of weeks later. In between, so I find out that I'm going for, there are 18 parts, sorry, there are nine parts that we're going for, and I'm down to the last 18. So I've literally got a 50, one in two 50% chance of getting a part. In this Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, I'm 21. So I, um, so I go to the Athenaeum Hotel on uh, Piccadilly, you know, go into the, knock on the door of the suite, and I'm shaking, nervous. And I knock on the door of the suite, and I knock on the door, and they open it. And they go, okay, remember how you got here. Remember the sort of attitude that you had to come here. And as they open, they go, come in. And I open the door, and the room's like twice the size of this. It's huge, this suite. And right in the far corner, there's like 20 LA execs in suits all sitting around a table. And they sort of look at me like a cockroach who's just walked in. And Tom Hanks, bless him, sees me, and he leaps up from the table. He comes running across the room. It took him about 20 seconds because the room was so long. And he runs across the room, and he's like, Hey, Ralph, how are you, man? Thank you so much for coming in. It's great to see you. And I'm like, well, this is amazing. And he, look, he's obviously only read my name on a piece of paper two seconds ago, but he didn't need to make that effort, you know? No. Comes running over. Oh, great to see you. And he goes... How, how, how you doing, my, how, how you doing, my friend? Is everything okay? And I'm like, <clears throat> okay, make him laugh. And I go, I'll be honest, Tom, I'm sick to the pit of my stomach. And he goes, oh God, why? What, what's what's wrong? And I go, well, it's a big audition, isn't it? I'm just, you know, it's a bit nervous. And he, there's this pause, and time stops, probably only like a second, but to me it was an eternity. And he goes. Oh, I like this guy. He's honest. He turns around to his LA exec. I like this. This guy's honest. I like him. <laughs> nice. And I'm thinking, thank fuck for that. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you've got your foot in the door. Now just push your advantage home. All right. I'm thinking of anything to say. And he, he's come running over and he's got this huge gray beard. It's down to his like chest and his hair's all long because he's filming Castaway at the time. Right. So he's dead thin as well. And I think, trying to think of anything to say, I'm like, Hey, uh, nice, uh, I'm still at the fucking door at this point, by the way. I've barely moved. You're not even in. No, I'm leaving in the room. And I've gone, nice beardage, by the way. And he goes, uh, excuse me? I said, beardage, nice beardage. And he's like, uh, what? Say what now? And I'm like, and so my heart rate starts going. I'm starting oh. to fucking panic now because he can't understand what I'm saying. And I go, beard, beard, beardage. I'm just saying beardage. It's just a... I mean, your beard. It's a joke word for beard. I mean, I'm just saying beardage. It was like a joke word for... Because you've got a big beard. Nice beard is what I'm trying to say. And bless him, he still tries to bail me out. He goes, oh, oh, what? This old thing? Oh, sure, sure. It's, it's not even for a part. It's just, uh, it's just you know, fashion. <laughs> I think it looks kind of cool, don't you? And I'm shitting my panicking at this point. And he goes, I think it looks kind of cool, don't you? And I went, I swear, I went, nah, you look like shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did he, did he get the dry northern humour? I mean, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and his little face fell. His lovely little generous face fell after he'd done all that effort. And he looked hurt. He looked genuinely hurt. He's like, why has this 21-year-old kid just come in and basically mugged me off? <laughs> and... uh so, I mean, to be honest, I mean, he's Tom Hanks. He can take a joke and whatever, and he probably, he almost certainly, in fact, just laughed and thought nothing of it, and we went and whatever. But all I know is that for the next 20 minutes, I was just sitting there going, you told Tom Hanks he looks like shit. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? That so little I, voice. Fucking awful. I don't remember reading. All I remember is being terrible. Don't, I just don't remember anything about it. And then I left and was just like... 
I'll, no, well, I'll never ever forget that as long as I live. I didn't get the part. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. There's actually a funny postscript to that story, which is I told it verbatim to um, about two years later. Sorry, that's my phone falling out of my pocket. That's a sign. That's Tom Hanks's sort of <laughs> telekinetic power. Um, yeah, I told this story. I was in a bar with, uh, with, a couple of, with a friend, and she had two American friends, and I was talking to them, um, and uh, they were over doing a play. And I was chatting to one of them, um, like Jennifer and Colin they were called, and I was chatting to them, and I told them that whole story, and I said about how nice Tom Hanks had been and everything. And I told him the story, and I finished, and they laughed. And the guy went, you want to know something that's really funny? And I went, what? He goes, that's my dad. I was telling Colin Hanks the story. <laughs> Can you imagine if I called him a cunt? If it all stopped, what, what would I do? No. Would you, would you go, do you know what? Yeah. I did all right. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. But then there would be a part of me that after a while would go, oh, or you'd see, if I go to the theatre and I see something, that makes me go, oh, ah, I really want to do another play. Back. Or I'd love to work here. Like when I worked at the Royal Court, you know, if I go to the Royal Court and see anything, it still gives me these feelings of, God, I've worked here. I do feel like I, I um, made the most out of, in my up till now career, yeah. made the most out of my, what talent I had. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't feel like I'm... I know an awful lot of people that are like, why aren't I getting those jobs? Of course. You can't be like... Cause it's I've never your... had that. Yeah. I've always just thought, oh, look at you. I think that's a really healthy way, a really I, healthy attitude. I always think that if you don't know how lucky you are, you will never be happy. And another year is done. And what a year it's been. All the guests have been amazing. And a big thank you to those people because they come on here... It is quite exposing. Each and every one of them says more or less the same thing at the beginning, how nervous they are. Or they've got no story, they've got nothing to say. And I have to reassure them that each and every guest says the same thing. And I think you'll join me in saying that each and every one of those guests has been remarkable. It's a big deal, you know. They they come on, they talk so openly about their state of mind, their past, their lives. Um, and to not come on and like sell products or talk too much about their work and it's about them. It's, uh, it's a really lovely thing that they do and I appreciate it. I really do. And I know you do too. And another people, another people, more people we need to thank is yourselves because you download, you subscribe, you support us on Patreon. And if you don't support us on Patreon or you can't afford to, or you don't want to, that's absolutely fine. But will you do us a favor? Tell a friend, tell two friends, tell three friends, give them this episode, send them this. There might be a clip here that, that sparks something off or they think they might like it, they might join in and that's all that we want. So thank you so much. And yeah, that's it. 2019 now, new episode soon. When Craig, when? Thursday, of course, but what date, Craig? The 10th of January, Thursday, the 10th of January, that is when brand new Two Shot Podcast episodes will be available for you to download, subscribe, and tell your friends about. So, until then, I want to, wait there, I want to raise a glass. There we go. Myself and producer Griff would like to wish each and every one of you a happy and healthy and restful 2019. So, thanks for all the love and support for 2018, and let's get cracking. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. And just before you go, we'd like to leave you with this. We hope it gives you a little spring in your step and go legging it into 2019 with open arms and a big heart. Take care. One, two, three, four. <laughs>